Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Soccer America, the soccer paper of record. Go to SoccerAmerica.com and sign up for your subscription today. And by Nella from Fitbiomics. A Harvard doctor has found a probiotic strain that is found in most world-class athletes. Not all probiotics are the same. More information on all our sponsors at overtheball.com slash sponsors. Call or text us at 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hola, buenos dias, everyone. I am back from Mexico. Kevin Flynn here on Over the Ball, alongside D2 Men's Head Coach of the Year and defending national champion, Chris Shamadies. Shamadies, what's happening, man? We got uh, Sasha Sarovsky, the head coach of the University of Maryland, another former head coach of the year. Are you going to feel a little competition, Chris, with you two kind of jousting back and forth here? He's got a few national championships, right? So, so he's, he's, he's higher up the totem pole than I am. He's, he- he's ahead of you. But uh, yeah, Sasha, I've known for a long time. We played in the, uh, in the indoor league together uh, and uh, he was always a lot of fun then. Very articulate, uh, which is rare for a soccer player. <laughs> you know, just kidding. Uh, very articulate, but uh, very passionate about the game. And uh, I think, you know, Chris, we were talking about it last week, about how I played with a couple of guys. They just viewed the game differently. Yeah. Um, like you were talking about Jesse Marsh, your experience with him. They Players who know they're going to coach when they get uh, when they get out of it, and they have that kind of that mind for it. Anyway, Sasha's coming on. Uh, we've had him on the program before. I always love having him on. Um, great guy, but also he's one of the head coaches spearheading this uh, this drive to try and change Division One men's soccer into a split season, which makes so much sense on so many different levels. And uh, these guys have worked their ass off; they've worked tirelessly, and women to to try and make this thing happen. Actually, saying men and women, mostly men. I think uh, Chris, you would have a better perspective on this, but um, you know. I think for men, Division One, a split season makes so much sense. You look at it at the Premier League, the amount of games they play, and they're complaining about it constantly with a deeper roster, and they still say physically they can't do it. Yet college, uh, D1, playing three games a week sometimes. So Yeah, yeah. D1 uh, is different right now between the men and the women because the men have what you're talking about, what they're calling the 21st century model, where instead of having what we've done 50 years ago at the NCAA level, they want to change it to splitting the season. And Sasha has been the, the leading voice to corral a, a team of professionals to basically lead this charge and try to get this try to get the NCAA to pass this as legislation and force the D1 schools to do it at the men's side. The women's side have looked at it differently. They've asked for some more time on the front end of the season, meaning for July, they'd like more time to kind of make a longer ramp up to preseason. Um, but they haven't necessarily gone the same route as the men have. And it'll be interesting to see how it flushes out over time. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk to Sasha about it because it, it seems, uh, it, you know, because of Title IX and everything else, it seems like a very different ball of wax for the women's side of things um you know so, so it'll be good to get caught up with sasha because i always like to have our listeners sort of figure out how we can mobilize how we can pressure the nca to make this happen they still do some crazy things like they won't let the referee keep the time on this on the, on the field uh you know a platoon subbing just some things that just you know really annoy me um and by the yeah. way one of, one of our sponsors soccer america has a great article by ian plender Leith is his name um, and we've had him on the show before. Uh, he wrote about uh, wasting time and how it should be penalized. And it's almost like flopping. It's one of the things that uh, 
drives me crazy about our game. So we'll check that out in Soccer America. So, yeah, one thing also, Kevin, that got passed, though, is the yeah. elimination of overtime at the college level. So, you know, it used to be golden goal, two times 10 minutes, and they've eliminated that, which, you know, I, I think it was originally presented to piggyback with the 21st century model. And then they tabled that, but this was able to get passed through a different channel. And so now it's the cart before the horse because now you don't have the overtime and you don't have the 21st century model. So it's like, oh, my goodness. 21st century model used to mean such a different thing to me in high school and college, but um, I don't know. But I, I, well, that's interesting because a lot of these components build a better case. And now if some are getting sort of paired off uh, and passed or failed on a, on an individual basis, we might not get the whole thing through. But I, I just think academically, physically, it really one game on a Saturday, this is a growing sport in the United States when all the other sports are not growing. And, and it's like, look to the future, uh, embrace the game, the game, the way the game is supposed to be played internationally. So, um, so anyway, so some, some, Things we should talk about before we get Sasha on. Um, I was encouraged. Uh, Brendan Aronson is back after a six-week knee injury. Uh, scored a PK on his uh, on his first time back. He's a nice player. Uh, I've watched him. He kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah, come out of uh, Philadelphia Union, and, and I think he has family members there too, the younger brothers and whatnot. And uh, their academy has been sneaky good. You know, they've they've produced quite a few players now. Jim Curtin's done a great job with the first team, and. Uh, yeah, he's done a really good job of coming through the ranks, uh, getting chances to play in Europe through Red Bull and underneath that umbrella, uh, being from that, there's that lineage, right? Where you can go from Red Bull Academy to Red Bull, New York, to Salzburg, to Leipzig. And nice. so, yeah, Jesse did it as a manager. Jesse Marsh did it as a manager and players are doing it as well, like Tyler Adams. So he's gone through that yeah. same channel and he's got a chance to do the same. Yeah, that's great. Like coaches and players coming up through the uh, through the system. Also, Matt Turner back in action. Uh, you know, I, I forgot how long he's been injured. He's been sidelined almost three months, Chris, with a foot injury. Uh, yeah, it doesn't sound right, you know, because yeah. it came from that game, right? That cold game, and and it just I don't know. There's got to be another side to the story that we're not hearing because it just doesn't sound right. Right. We, we talked about that before on the show. Uh, he tried to dispel the rumors. At first, they thought it was frostbite, but that wouldn't be three months. And I don't know. It's like climbing Everest. You get your lo- your toe lopped off. You wouldn't have a toe injury. It'd be gone, uh, basically. So Yeah. Uh, and also, I think Bruce Arena would probably see he's the type to say something out loud to the public, you know, but he's been kind of quieter on this. So maybe it's innocuous. Maybe there's nothing to it. You talk about Arena, uh, you know, he's got that Brooklyn accent, and it's like, I, lo- I when he was doing commentary, I loved it. It was yeah. great. Yeah. It, he really was good, and I hope he comes back to it when his coaching days are over because he, I kind of felt like he was our Madden, our John Madden, and God knows I complained about it enough on this program. We need more American announcers and a more American perspective instead of this authentic accent thing they got going. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I enjoy, you know, Premier League mornings and all that stuff. But yeah, Tim Howard is uh, our resident American on that yeah. panel. And Kyle, Kyle Martino was great as well. So obviously, yeah. the, the uh, you know, we've got the goods. So just let people get their, their up at bat so we yes. can uh, have more more play or more people who know the game and their Americans can, can talk about it. So, hey, one thing I want to get your perspective on, uh, this is kind of sad news, um, Hope Solo, just about to get uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame, which to me is a, 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 another issue because I'm not so such a fan of that. Uh, but she's entering um, 
an alcohol treatment program. So we wish her family and her best of luck with that. But you're not um, a fan of the Hall of Fame, you say? No, I'm not a fan of Hope Solo, really. Um, I say. Over the years, she has, uh, you know, I think to be in the Hall of Fame, she's the greatest uh, goalkeeper, women's goalkeeper. I would say Bay Preps goalkeeper this country has ever produced men's or women's she was dominant but i think to be a hall of famer you need to walk the walk talk the talk she's created a, a lot of problems you know domestic abuse uh, um assault uh drunk driving a whole bunch of things that happened throughout the years and i always just say there's always those rules that are different for the great players and that's just that's unfortunate because I think it undermines the yeah. entire process. So I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I can see that both ways, right? Because like, is Barry Bonds should he be in the Hall of Fame? Like, and you're under your logic, no. <laughs> A big asterisk next to his name, like Mark McGuire. Right. But know? at the same time, like if if you lifted the hood on a lot of these a lot of these athletes, you know, you might find some stuff that you don't love, and then no one's in the Hall of Fame. You know, so it's a weird one. You know, it's a weird one. I don't know. It's like the Pete Rose thing. Do you think Pete Rose, who gambled on his own team, uh, should be in the Hall of Fame? And we're talking base. Welcome to baseball today, everyone. We're <laughs> three yeah. baseball references. There's <laughs> another. There's another home run. I'm going for a chili dog. <laughs> I think you're looking at different. You like the lines we draw, right? Like what what lines do we draw? Like you're betting on you're betting on your own team. Okay, that's not cool. You're out forever. But if you hit home runs and you're on the juice, that's okay. You're in. Like, yeah. you know, it's weird questions. Well, anyway, back to lift- soccer. You were talking about lifting the hood. Uh, people like when you when Barry Bonds was doing the juice, you couldn't lift the hood. It was too big. The size of his cranium swelled up like a pumpkin. I know. It was unbelievable. And big so, man. you know, you got people who were, uh, you know, it was like the old Eastern European uh, shot putters. You know, it's like, wow, that's a. Uh, that's a huge penis for the, for the women's winner. <laughs> that's is uh, that's something. It's bigger than how far she threw the shot. Uh, well, is this going to affect Hope Solo's chance to be in the uh, Hall of Fame? I don't think so because she's already in it. It's just um, it, you know they they had already made the announcement, so she's in because she, you know let's face it, she was a kick ass player. But I mean, she got arrested uh, in a Walmart parking lot where she was inside her vehicle. Mm-hmm. Oh look, I, uh, I'm not even going to pile on because it's if it's once it's substance abuse and a person has a problem, then um, and they're trying to get help, we we encourage that. I just think that some of the um, you know like the 2014 one was two counts of domestic violence. It involved her half sister, and you know she beat up her uh, like 14 year old nephew. I don't know. So it's sort of like Hall of Fame. So anyway, that's that's uh, always one for debate. Um, Great weekend of soccer. The Premier League is just uh, MLS and Premier League. Man, it was just a fun weekend. Getting nothing else done, unfortunately. I know you're getting to see everyone at their best, you know. And it's uh, it's the last few games, and you know, there's that point in the the City Leeds game where where the City has a corner and the ball pops out, and then I think it's Rodrigo's all by himself with the ball, but he slips, and now Leeds gets a chance, and you see every City guy sprinting back because right. it's this it could it could come down to any play. You know, and to see maximum effort is fun. I, I want to get your thoughts on that as a coach because I watched the two games. I watched Liverpool play at Everton, and oh my God, you know, Frank Lampard had the boys doing their Mourinho's Park the Bus special. It was a horrible game to watch. Uh, if I was a player on that field for Everton, I'd be like, wow, man, just let us play. Let us give it a shot. Uh, but they just, they just packed it in uh, well behind the half, packed all 11 players behind the ball. Uh, boring game to watch. 
uh, Liverpool finally broke through. That missed a couple of opportunities, but had the one nil win. Then I watched the Man City game. Leeds went for it, man. Leeds yeah. went for it. I, you know, you're talking about the slip that happened right in the beginning of the game, but they were countering pretty well on Man City. I think they lost composure when they got to sort of that attacking third of the field, but he had them playing well. If they had played that well, they'd be much higher in the table. Don't you think Jesse Marsh had them playing well? Yeah, I mean, he's he's come in and, and really focused on the defensive side of things. And so they've conceded less and it's made him more competitive. He's got enough points. He wasn't expecting to beat City necessarily, but it's a chance to take a swing and it's in their DNA. He's not going to change their DNA. You know, Everton, okay, fair enough. They don't have that kind of DNA that Leeds does. So they kind of went that side, which by the way, was a benefit for Liverpool because they were going to see that against Villarreal during the week. So it gave them a dry run at that um but at the same time like lead city it was like an nba game like it was back and forth it was fun to watch it was it was uh it was so fun and you can see i mean i i I guess marsh he replaces bielsa who's a sort of legendary coach uh, but apparently the players were beat up they were tired uh what what is the difference between Bielsa's approach and and Marsh's approach. Yeah, Bielsa was is one of the few people who coaches in a way where a lot is demanded of you man to man all over the field. And so there's tons of running that comes with that. And the only way to have that kind of fitness and maintain that kind of fitness is to do all that running week in, week out. So his fitness tests are through the roof. His expectations and demands are through the roof. And, you know, the human body can do it. But after a course of time, it gets mentally and physically draining. So I think Jesse came in and said, we're not going to play exactly that way. We're going to keep versions of it. That's why he got the job because he comes out of the Red Bull model, which somewhat similar to what Bielsa was doing. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of flow and man-to-man and running, but it is visible to the eye how much those Leeds players run. And he's just saying, okay, we're going to be a little bit more shape-oriented, so it's a little bit less than what Bielsa did. And now they're getting their legs back, you know, by recovering through the game. A little more shape-oriented. Less man-to-man, a little bit more shape, so they can kind of be in zones as starting points. And then from there, blast out into their running segments that they do. But they're not just chasing guys all over the way Leeds was. All right. I see what you're saying. Because I I watched Liverpool, and the reason that I was attracted to them as their style of play was, you know, you have Salah, Mane, uh, you know, all chasing the ball, getting goal side, uh, doubling down on balls, you know, uh, and that looks exhausting. But I think the difference is perhaps, and you can speak to this, Liverpool has depth. So you see them rotating one great player for another great player. Uh, Leeds perhaps doesn't have the amount of horses that. Uh, yeah, I mean, depth is a part of it, but the tactics, the, the the shape is different. Liverpool still has moments where they rest with the ball, moments when they're sitting in shape and they're not pressing. Like that's a part of what they do. Where Leeds under Bielsa, there was that did not really exist. They were pushed and pressing for 90 minutes and man to man, so that you're chasing a guy at full blast every single minute. And when you get broken down, which inevitably you will, not only do you have to recover, but the whole group has to recover and there's wide open spaces. So everyone's running exponentially more over 90 minutes. That's the difference. So it's, it's the hardest running team in the league. And that's really hard to maintain. Yeah. And over the course of the season, yeah, that just beats you up. And uh, I'm telling you though, looking at Man City, and Liverpool, the amount of games they're playing. I am tired watching 
the games. I have no time to watch them all. It's like, I believe I was flying back from the East Coast and it was, uh, I got to catch up with a few of the games uh, on the plane, but I'm, I'm watching soccer for, you know, I'm watching six, seven hours of Liverpool playing soccer and Man City playing soccer. It's like, uh, apparently De Bruyne was so exhausted after the, um, the uh, Real Madrid game that, that, you know, he just went to bed right after. Well, oh, is that true, really? Because I could see that they rested guys in this weekend's game, right? They didn't have they had they have great depth. But they were able to rotate them a little bit, and some of their main guys like Silva and De Bruyne, De Bruyne they were just literally being rested for Wednesday at, at Madrid. Right. Um, one of the announcers, uh, I think Arlo White, said, um, you know, Thiago, the, the midfielder, Calantera or whatever, uh, for Liverpool. He said he's the best best passing midfielder in the league. Pretty amazing passer, but I was thinking the only one who could perhaps rival him is De Bruyne at this point. And De Bruyne seems to be more of an offensive threat as well. Yeah, yeah. Thiago Alcantara is uh, a player who'll sit a little bit deeper in general. You know, he's done that with Bayern, and, and he's now doing that with Liverpool. And he allows like the Jordan Hendersons to step up and press and run and do all that stuff. De Bruyne is a little bit more advanced up the field and does a little bit more on the attacking side, like you say. The thing about De Bruyne that's amazing to watch is that he's. He, he he doesn't have a weakness in his game. Like he he can score goals, he can get right. assists, he defends, he works, he leads, he can play multiple positions, he's he can pass short passing, long passing, service. It's amazing. Free kicks. He's probably the most complete player in the world. All while looking like howdy doody. It's absolutely amazing to me. Yeah. He must he does not look like a person that I would fear stepping up against on the pitch. And yet his vision, his ability to strike the ball with both feet, uh, the passes that he that he lays off. Yeah. I, I mean, right. You're calling him Hottie Duty. And when Dom Kinnear was on our show, he called him Dennis the Menace. I mean, these are the names that we're calling him, and he's like the best guy in the world. It's right. Something. Amazing. So all right, well, good, man. So uh MLS, I didn't catch any of the games this weekend? Did you see anything? Not much. I saw some scores, but I didn't catch. I was a little bit on the road myself. Yeah, yeah. I, everything that I watched was sort of uh, recorded. So, um, and it's a great thing. I flew JetBlue back from Boston. I had to go from Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, to Boston in a single day, which was uh, a lot of fun. But um, coming back on JetBlue, uh, free Wi-Fi, and I'm streaming all the games. Uh, on nice. I on see Austin's computer. in first place in the West. Yeah, and I got to get down to that stadium. I was just in Austin. I didn't get a chance to go by there, but I've heard great things about Nashville Stadium as well and Cincinnati Stadium. I'm going to be in Cincinnati next month, so um, I'm going to check that stadium out. But this is encouraging news. Uh, these stadiums that are being built, it, it's so much of the atmosphere that you've experienced at MLS um, and so much of what this country needs, I think, is to, to feel that. Not not the revolution playing in, in uh, you know, uh, Patriot Gillette. Stadium, Patriot yeah. Place, yeah, Gillette. Uh, I remember when it was Schaefer Stadium way back. But yeah, it's just so uh, not atmospheric. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I think when Robert. Seattle and Portland came in, they 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 show you know the, the way they their fans march to the stadium, they chant the whole time. It set a standard, and so now all the future MLS owners who are building stadiums were looking at that as like, man, how do we replicate some version of that? So now this next generation LAFC comes in and they have it with their thirty two fifty two, and all these teams that are coming in are creating these small intimate stadiums that pop in terms of noise. It's fantastic. You know, uh, I knew one of the. NFL executives. He's been on the show before when it was over at Sirius, and he talked about uh, he's the head of marketing, and he brought all the NFL owners into a room and had them watch 
the Seattle fans marching to a game. And he said, look, this is what we need. Because if you think about it, American football, as successful as it is on television, it is expensive to get into a game. It's not a family atmosphere anymore. It's not a family. You can't afford it. Um, you know, so that's one great thing about, you know, our game is that uh, you, it's still affordable for a family and you can still, uh, you know, kind of see that atmosphere, that passion that you see over in Europe. It's, it's starting to hit here a little bit. Yeah. All these places that have uh, like downtown access, that those right. are the ones that are crushing it. You know, because the fans feel like, hey, they can make a day of it and they can go out and, and have lunch, have a beer, walk to the stadium, you know, et cetera, and have them make a full day out of it. And then they have a great time at the game. So the ones that are more remote in the middle of nowhere, those are a little bit harder to get to. Obviously, in Europe, you know, it's already they're branded already. So like if Bayern Munich has their stadium, you know, somewhere on the outskirts, it's still OK. You know, because right, they'll, right. they'll get their people to go. But organically, as we're trying to grow the league, that's been preferable with new stadiums. Right. Yeah, because that would be basically an NFL model, what Byron could do. Because Byron could put themselves anywhere outside the city and people would still go to the games. But they have a longer history. So Right. Um, all right. Well, let's take a break here. When we come back, we're going to talk to the head coach of the University of Maryland, Sasha Sorovsky. He's got a great proposal to sort of get this split season for men's division one college soccer which i am uh, all behind so you're listening to over the ball stick around call or text us at 424-229-2247 that's 424-229-2247 all right we're back on over the ball and unfortunately sasha sarovsky is not back uh in fact he wasn't even with us in the first place but uh He's a little tied up right now, so we're going to have to um, to miss that interview with him. All right. Hey, we got lucky. Uh, you know, I said we didn't have Sasha, but we do. Uh, as most D1 coaches, all of my friends who are D1 coaches, this time of year, they're out on the golf course. and That's exactly where Sasha was. Uh, so uh, welcome back to Over the Ball, brother. How are you? Hey, great to be with you. Uh, yep, sorry, it was a perfect day today. I got pulled out <laughs> and I just blanked. So I'm here now, and let's, let's, let's talk 21st century model. Yeah, that's what we were talking about at Chris Shamanis and I um, before you got on um, about it. You know, now he's a women's coach. They have sort of a different view, but even from his perspective, it makes sense on so many different levels. We've talked about it before, how I think this is so important about moving ahead with the game and the development of the game in this country. Tell us where we stand right now with, uh, you know, the 21st century model and where it stands with the NCAA. Yeah. So great question. Yeah. So we've been working at this for almost 10 years. And unfortunately, on the eve of, uh, of April of 2020, when COVID hit, we were in a two year pause or two year delay. And we're all excited to have a vote uh, on April 13th of 2022. And a couple of weeks prior to the vote, we started getting word that there's a possibility that all of the legislative proposals to be voted on by the, by the NCAA Division One Council had a chance to be tabled. And they all did get tabled. And part of the reason they all got tabled is college sports in general are going through a remarkable transformation at the moment. There are mm -hmm. seismic shifts within the NCAA. Uh, and the number one shift is uh, what's called NIL, name, image, and likeness, which essentially is um, you know, throwing the amateurism concept of college sports as we know it out the window. Right. Uh, there is also dramatic conference realignment happening. There is also a, a number of other lawsuits uh, uh, that the NCAA has lost in recent years 
uh, something called the Alston case, which now allows for student athletes to uh, receive academic merit scholarships. Uh, the NCAA has failed miserably <clears throat> to listen to the voice of student athletes and to distribute the revenues appropriately uh, to student athletes uh, over many, many years. Um, and essentially the NCAA has proven to, by trying to be everything to everyone is not serving anyone. Anyone. Um, and right now this transformation process that is happening uh, has essentially put our vote on hold. Uh, in fact, there is an NCAA Division I transformation committee uh, that recommended tabling of, of the vote in part because there's so many things happening and uh, the, the very nature of Division I sports and, and, and maybe uh, a breakup of, of Division I as we know it into sub-buckets of Division I-A, I-AA, I-AAA, who knows, could be one for a uh, based on uh, resources, based on ambitious, based on goals, based on uh, various things that could happen is, is underway. Uh, nonetheless, uh, we were very disappointed, Kevin, because yeah. uh, we've been waiting for 10 years. Um, we think our proposal is transformational in nature and it is the right thing to do. It is driven by practitioners, coaches and student athletes aimed at uh, providing a better playing and practice season model for men's soccer players and really for soccer in general. Um, and we're very hopeful that this Thursday on May 5th, the NCAA Legislative Committee will consider some of the proposals of the 90 proposal will consider some to be pulled out for a vote by the Division I Council as early as mid-June. Uh, that is something that the conferences of the Big 10, AC, and Pac-12, along with our 21st Century Model Committee, is, is meeting almost daily on to find a way to get our proposal pulled out because we've waited long enough yeah. and it's time to have our voices heard and our vote uh, to take place. Um, and we're, we're, we're just now waiting to see what happens. So let me ask you this. So the legislative committee is gonna meet, it seems like their attitude is bigger fish to fry right now um and you know look as a former soccer player i always felt we got short shrift it was sort of an afterthought soccer uh you know they talked about a non-intense sport non-revenue dri driving but you know look at the future look how the landscape has changed it's uh it's it's different than it was when you and i played back in the 1800s um <laughs> but so but when you're saying the legislative committee is meeting are they gonna are you gonna try to get some things voted on piecemeal or are you trying to get the whole thing voted on as you submitted it no. So the Division One Council is the committee that will vote on the proposal. The Legislative Committee reviews a lot of the proposals and recommends which proposals may fall within the boundaries of the Transformational Committee. Mm -hmm. um, our proposal is in Bylaw 17. That is something that the NCAA Transformational Committee is not discussing at this point in time. So we are hoping to pull that out um, as, as a matter of, of practic practicality uh, mm -hmm. to get our vote taken. Um, yeah, look, um, it, it's uh, soccer is the most popular sport in this country. Um, at the collegiate level, it has not been allowed to grow, allowed to right. flourish. It's stuck in neutral. We all know that the current uh, competitive season is set up to stay neutral, to really not be allowed to grow. It's impossible to have a 
a, a great national championship experience when you're playing between mid-November and mid-December. It is the yeah. most crowded calendar of the year, sports calendar of the year. There's very little opportunity to get media coverage. The weather in most places Horrible. is very, very poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, it's just a very difficult way to grow the sport. So our model uh, allows for a much better championship experience, which would now be through the month of May and early June. And uh, it, look at the weather outside right now. I mean, we, right now we would be in a, in a place where we're finishing up our conference championships and getting ready to start the NCAA tournament. And how great would that be? Right. And, you know, I saw, I was at the Clemson, you know, our, our mutual friend and coach Mike Noonan winning that one. Uh, what an amazing atmosphere because the weather was nice and it would be nice to have a college soccer cup somewhere. I do believe it could be a revenue producer. Um, I think, you know, like talking about like coach Noonan and yourself, you guys have put so many guys into the pros. It seems like that might be harder and harder to do because, I mean, I thought one of the great parts about it, the United States was you get an education, you go to a great coach uh, like your program, and you can teach these guys. Some guys want to be pros. They might, they might not. But in the meantime, they're getting a college education. And then you've put a lot of guys in MLS and beyond. Um, is it getting harder because the, the kids or the boys are going to, to uh, these development programs? You know, the, uh, the, the USL and the... Uh, yeah. You know, the MLS stuff. We're, we're very proud within the co- current college soccer system that there's a lot of great coaches. You mentioned Coach Mike Noonan, a good friend of mine, and so many coaches are doing a great job in putting players into MLS and, and really places in USL and abroad. But we can do a much better job. Our right. vision is to have the best platform for ages 18 to 24 in the world that combines the unique academic and athletic experience with incredible facilities and support networks uh, that, that could be a boom to MLS and, and overseas because we're provi- we will be building not only great soccer players, but great human beings uh, mm-hmm. and much more well-prepared for the, for the next level. But this 21st century model is about the 5,500 kids that play soccer, not the 55 that go pro every year. Um, right. It is about providing a better experience during the academic year within the current limitations of, of days and hours that we have uh, to to really, uh, you know, kind of let the sport grow and, and let, let the kids let's have a great experience. You know, before you came on, Chris and I were talking about, uh, you know, Liverpool and Man City. They're playing two games a week uh, with a deep bench and everybody's complaining about the physical, how draining it is physically. And, you know, you and I playing in college two, three games a week at times. And then you're getting on the bus and you're trying to do your homework. Not me, of course, but yeah. you maybe. Um, but it, it's sort of like, it's a lot to put on the kids. And I think, uh, you know, this makes sense on, on so many levels. I hope they give it a shot. What, what is the current climate at the NCAA right now? Are they just in triage, just trying to, stop the bleeding and and they're not going to give this a look or or what What, what's your feeling no look i i am 100 confident there will be a version of the 21st century model in the very near future whether it's voted on this um in june or whether it's it's voted on next you know fall or next january it will happen soon because the power five conferences are fully behind this proposal the power five conferences want more and more power and autonomy to do the things that they believe are in the best interests of the sport and of the student athletes playing it. The, the challenge in college soccer and in, in, in college sports has simply been that no change ever happens. Right. Change happens 
only when there is a lawsuit or there's a gender equity problem or there's big money to be made. We don't fall in any of those three categories. And therefore it's been almost impossible for us to ever have our voices heard. We did a petition in February of this year so we can activate the voice of the student athletes. 86% of every enrolled student athlete in division one soccer signed a petition to support the 21st century model. Think about that. Wow. 86% of the current active student athletes who many of them will never get a chance to play in this model said, this is what they want to do. In 2016, the NCAA did a study and asked kids if they'd rather play over two semesters. Men's soccer was the only one said yes. In 2017, the old NSCAA, current United Soccer Coaches Association did a survey and we had 5,000 kids take part. 82% of those kids said they want to play in the 21st century model. And now a signed petition of 86%. The NCAA must do the right thing. And at some point, we have to allow the student athletes to play a sport that they love in in an experience that is so value the NCAA student athlete experience to do soccer the right way. It's, it, it just has to happen. This is why people like myself and, and Coach Noonan and so many coaches, we have not stopped, uh, you know, uh, in, in our aim to to get this over the finish line. And, but you guys have been tireless, not just the coaches, but there's athletic directors involved, administrators, yeah. it, yeah. because it does make sense on so many levels. So, yeah. so look, so this this podcast goes out to, to our listeners. We we sort of yeah. um, you know promote it through yeah. uh, Facebook and Twitter and everything through Octane Media. Is is there something that we can do to? to bring about, I don't know, to, to create some heat, to let them know that people are thinking about this and waiting. Can you write anyone? Can you call anyone? Can you, uh, I mean, it seems like you guys have done your homework. I mean, to yeah. get 86% of all the college players in the country is absurd. absurd. It's unheard of. It's an yeah. amazing effort. No, look, it's, it's any time that we can get the message out to um, the landscape, whether it's NCAA administrators, whether it's yeah, you know, communities where, where they play soccer, where it's universities. I mean, you know, uh, it, it's, it's mind boggling that it's taken us 10 years to do this, but this is why the NCAA has been called on the carpet and why it has gone through this transformation process because it has failed to adapt, to be agile and to serve the voices and the needs of, of its practitioners. And and, and this has been, for me, someone who's been in the game for 40 years at the college level, a source of frustration. Right. And what I'm really proud of with our coaches is we have done everything the right way. Uh, we have not sued anybody. We have not publicly shamed anybody. Mm-hmm. We have done this the right way. We've met with committees. We've provided the information, we've done research, we've listened to everybody, we've collaborated with every coach in the US. We're working with all of our different constituencies um, so that our voices can be heard and and just hopeful at some point in time, the, uh, the, the people who are in voting positions are gonna say, this is the right thing to do and we must act now, we must do it now. Well, Sasha, I applaud your your passion for it. I have it, but you guys have really put in the hard work. You've mentioned all the people that are working hard to make this happen. It makes sense on so many different levels. Got a big vote coming up uh, this week and then another in June. Um, 
Best of luck for all of us, not just for you. Uh, you know, you're going to be fine. Your program's fantastic. Uh, you're going to be fine. This is everybody's thinking ahead about the game, the future of this game in this country, and to keep college soccer relevant at the highest level possible. And like you said, educate these uh, these kids at the same time. So, uh, so we appreciate you being on Over the Ball. We'll get this out to as many people as we can. Um, and hopefully when this vote passes, Sasha, we'll have you back on Over the Ball and we can, uh, we can, we can toast and say uh, looking forward to a healthy U.S. soccer college uh, experience for these new athletes coming in. Uh, but I appreciate you being on Over the Ball, pal. I would love that. I would love to celebrate. Um, and thank you for having me on the, on the show. How'd you hit them today? Um, yeah, just average. <laughs> <laughs> my buddy, my buddy told me the other day, I go, Hey, how'd you play? He goes, uh, well, I took a lesson. And he goes, you know what I found out? I go, what? He goes, it turns out I'm a lefty. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, look, I, I, uh, I, I don't want to be too good at golf. That means I'm spending too much time golfing. So exactly, exactly. Well, uh, the best two balls I hit all day was when I stepped on a rake. That was, uh, that's my life. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Sasha, thanks. thanks so much, pal. Thank Appreciate you. it. Uh, right. Thanks for being on over the ball. Thank you so much. Take care guys. All right, pal. But Chris, we've got something great for you. Uh, we have an interview next week, so you got to uh, bone up on this all uh, with the Douglas brothers. They're a directors, uh, two brothers, English. Uh, they just dropped a documentary on Ronaldinho uh, for the FIFA app, so you can get it on the FIFA app. Um, they sent me the the, uh, the documentary. We're going to watch it tonight, but. Uh, Ronaldinho, uh, one of my favorite players. First of all, I thought Ronaldinho was a middle-class kid. Uh, most of the players we'd always talked about from Brazil were always from the Barrios or, you know, the favelas. And uh, I thought Ronaldinho was a middle-class kid. And, and talking to this guy briefly yesterday, Andrew Douglas, he said, no, dirt poor. But what I loved about Ronaldinho was not only just the flair that he played with, but, my God, he always had a smile on his face. Yeah, yeah. wonderful to watch him. <laughs> Yeah, one of the most talented players we've ever had, right? Like you think about like just pure talent, you'll think in, in today's game, it's Neymar. And back then it was Ronaldinho. Like they didn't necessarily have the ability to put the longevity into their careers at the highest level the way Messi and Ronaldo have. That's what separates those guys. Mm -hmm. But man, in his generation, he was, yeah, probably the most talented guy out there with a smile and did a lot to bring Messi along as a young pro because that was a passing of the torch. That Barca right. team was Ronaldinho's team and he passed the torch to Messi. And then Ronaldinho was out and Messi took over the mantle of being the, the lead figure at Barca. Just He just megs everybody everywhere. Just because. <laughs> just because. <laughs> yeah. It's hysterical. Sometimes twice. It's, yeah. You know, watching the highlights through the years have been unbelievable. And he had some, you know, he tried to, I guess, sneak into another country just for a party under another name. And it's like, you're Ronaldinho, man. Everybody knows who you are. You're not going to get away with that. So this documentary talks about that. We get to talk to the director. So it'll be really, uh, it'd be really fun. So let's go back to what we were going to talk about with Sasha, though, because I we, we touched upon it briefly in the opening, but for me, it seems like common sense to make this happen. What are the holdups and why would, why would the women's program be sort of hesitant women's programs across the country? Yeah. I, you know, I, it goes to a vote, you know, so the men's coaches get to vote. The women's coaches get to vote. It's all under the umbrella of student welfare. And, and we all don't want to be on that older model, you know, that's been around. That's pretty much archaic now because the demands of the game have ramped up so much that playing, you know, multi-game weeks, 
is, is really difficult on the players. And so under this student welfare umbrella of, hey, it's going to be better for them academically, less travel, less wear and tear on their bodies, et cetera, et cetera. They're trying to pass this and get it over the line. The men and the women, I think, have voted differently. The, the men want what we now call this 21st century model where you split right. the games over the season. I, you know, there's other parts of this. There's the logistics of it, you know, for like a trainer and a medical staff and facilities. Like a lot of these things are shared at universities between between multiple sports, even right. at some of the higher, higher end programs. Like say UVA soccer, for example, they have Klockner Stadium, which is a soccer stadium in the fall but in the spring it's it's a lacrosse stadium so now if all of a sudden you have all these soccer games on it it creates problems for facilities and staff as well because trainers tend to rotate between teams as well so this has been put to the ad's and the presidents to try to solve it under the best interest of you know the student athlete welfare in our sport well you know what you basically bring up is is it better for the, the student athlete or is it better for the bottom line and it seems like uh, the bottom line is not really representative uh, of a, an improvement, but certainly for the physical well-being and, and academic well-being of the player, it is. So, uh, and yeah. yeah, plus you're talking about COVID and everything. No one knows the dust is still settling. We're still in COVID. Uh, people are acting like it's over, but it's it's still out there. So it's still a it's still a factor. Yeah, and the women's side voted differently. Like they're they're more interested in at least exploring this idea of a longer preseason because historically you get like this two week preseason before you have to play games, and it's it's just not even close to enough. Pro teams get two months at least, you know, before they start. And you can try different players and experiment with tactics and do different things. In the NCAA model, it's so you know tight that on time that it's really hard to kind of learn your group and figure out different variables. And so all of a sudden you're playing games right away and the bodies aren't really ramped up. So the women's side, they've been exploring like, Hey, instead of starting in August, can, can we bring our people in, in July, maybe have them take a summer class and have not full blown week a season, but maybe a night, an eight hour week where, you know, you get into your strength coach, you're getting on the field and, right. you know, for eight hours a week, you can start to touch on it and build up more slowly. And that might lead to longer term, fitness and health to get through the season a little bit better. It's funny because, you know, soccer is a year round game. I mean, you know, like with American football, you can't play more than maybe two months, three months uh, physically, but you can study the playbook. You can do strength training, agility training, your training during the, the year, which you can do in soccer as well. But there's something about our game, which is that the level of skill is very high. Um, you know, like basketball, you can play a bunch. You can just, you can always play basketball. It's not as a wearing on you. I mean, I'm sure getting on the road and the planes and everything is, but there's, um, they can play two games a week, three games a week, but, and football, you can't obviously. Um, but with soccer, boy, I tell people we used to play, you know, you play three months a year, you're, you're not going to be a player. There's just no way you can compete when you're, you're playing soccer three months a year and then you go to basketball or baseball it just doesn't work that way anymore especially yeah yeah there's the short term and the long term you know the short term is like the nfl they don't play multiple games in one week you know what i mean it's you you basically you're playing one game a week and you need your body to recover and even then the veterans don't even recover till wednesday or thursday of the pre from the previous game they say so like in our sport it's the same concept how do you now play back to back or or twice in 48 hours it's not realistic to the modern game especially the modern game where we're running more and pressing more and and all these different kinds of things and then there's the other part which is 
all the starting and stopping right now in the NCAA where you, you play and then you don't play and then you have winter break and then you have spring break and then you have summer break and you have all these like moments where you're training full blast and then you're not training at all. And of course you're supposed to be training on the outside, but it's, it's still not together. It's, there's no, there's no fluidity to it. It's hard to develop in a linear way because you have to be with your coaches for certain parts of the year. And there's many parts of the year where you can't be with your coaches. So that challenge is there. And I think the product would be better if we had a little bit more continuity throughout a 12 month cycle. Yeah. And at least if you're a professional player, you could, you know, everybody's monitoring everything. You as a college coach, the difficulty is these kids go out and they have their lives. And then you got certain players that's like they're hitting the beer and pizza and there's no way to sort of regulate that to say, Hey, uh, you know, if you've gained seven pounds uh, and it's not muscle mass, let's, let's work on it. You know, you can, you, you can coach, you, you know, you need to be able to coach year round. Yeah. I think the, like soccer's have gotten so much more popular through the years that I think the, the really serious players, which are typically in division one, especially are, are pretty well dialed into that. You know, it's, it's not an exact science, but you know, they're pretty well committed athletes and student athletes. And so, you know, they're, they're doing less of the yo-yoing that used to be there because there's Mm -hmm. so many more pro options now that these players think, Hey, maybe I have a chance and it doesn't have to be in the first division. It could be in the second division or whatnot. And, you know, whether it's USL or MLS. And so they have a chance to get to that next level. So they're serious about their four years of eligibility. I just think, you know, looking at players and I don't know if you look at your current team now, certain players have always gotten injured more than others, uh, certainly prone to it. And it's my biggest worry right now with the national team, you know, and this is one of the components of why they want to split season to have the week to recover, train, get, get ready. Um, you know, Liverpool's complaining about it with the amount of games they have to play right now and the injuries that they've battled, but you have like, Aronson's coming off an injury. Matt Turner's coming off injury. Got Giorena seems to not be able to get out of the injury. Uh, hold that is that they have on Pulisic. Um, so it, I was just thinking about how often, especially Rio Giorena and Pulisic have been hurt. You look at a player like Messi and the beating that he takes, and yet he's he's not injured that often. Um, is that something you try to? program in or study or what because you know, you know the, what i would do there, there's some of it is just bad luck right like we, we hear so many great nba nfl level talents that don't make it to the league because right. ultimately somewhere along the line they couldn't get out of the woods on injuries you know mm-hmm. um that's no different than our sport there's a lot of guys that are become unlucky on that side of things but there's also little things yeah i wonder about messi you know because it's like his ability to pick and choose his moments, to ride a tackle, to get out of a tackle, to know when to get off of his feet. You know, those are things you can teach a little bit of that. Plus there's also the instinct of it. Like you have that sixth sense for when you're going to get clobbered and you try to reduce the blow based on making sure your leg is not planted in the ground. And you, you're kind of right. doing little things like hopping up and all that stuff. And, you know, having that, that becomes its own art form, the sustainability of that. Right. So quarterbacks, I think have that, right. Like right. that great. Yeah. yeah. Brady has that sixth sense that for the most part, there's only been that, that one hit he took early on where he, and he had to miss a season because of it. But besides that, he's survived it by his smarts, getting around the ball at the right time. And I think Messi is like that as well. So, and also these guys are so well, they're so fit. They're so strong that they can withstand most things. I think it's your first point that's even more important. The art form of being able to know when to pull up, know when to pull out. 
Wow. Uh, no comment there. Sorry, on my own comment. I'm not going to comment on my own comment, but <laughs> I, I, I'm basically saying I think you're right because Messi can ride a tackle. <laughs> Messi can ride a tackle. Uh, he gets out of it earlier. And I think you look at like Christian holds on to the ball. Christian Pulisic holds on to the ball sometimes when I'm like, oh, you're going to get clobbered. I remember I, I, I won a ball off a player. Was, was taken off with the ball and the guy's chasing me with a full head of heat, right? Pissed. Yeah, yeah. And he takes me down and, and I got injured and the coach was like, you knew you were going to get nailed. Yeah. Why didn't you, you know, jump up, play it, play the ball, do something. And that was a, a you know, was foolish on my part. So I think you're really onto something. It's sort of like had to take a, take a hit, basically a soccer hit, which is all low generally. Yeah, and, and there's an art form to getting rid of the ball, to understanding how to create contact, initiate contact, so you're not always getting the blow, that you're, you're actually the first one to take to give the hit. And then there's also the idea of how you fall, like literally how you fall, you know, and how you right. can absorb a fall, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if a guy really, really wants to get you, he can, you know, you, you hope that, uh, you know, it, it's, I always, sometimes I think of the NHL, right? Like, well, why didn't a guy just crush Gretzky? And there was this sense that you couldn't touch him because then you'd have to fight Marty McSorley for the next 20 minutes, right? So, like, not that there are those kinds of fisticuffs in our sport, but there is an understanding that you don't really touch those guys much. And at the same time, your teammates are stepping up. But more than anything, I mean, you grow up, you understand how to play the game at that level and that you're going to get hit sometimes and you learn how to get better at that. You know, you bring up an interesting point. I was thinking of Gretzky because I was at an event where I was talking to a couple of guys and they were like, oh, he would, he just made you look like a fool. Didn't, you know, nicest guy around. But he said, you try to hit him, you try to put the body on Gretzky and he would melt. He'd be just like, like butter. He'd just be like, you couldn't get him. You couldn't, you couldn't stick him hard. And then you're talking about basically the better players being protected sometimes from you know, those old Italian hacking defenders, you know, that, that would just, or George Best, if you look at the old George Best highlights, I mean, these English guys are just, uh, just nailing them over and over and he's riding tackles, jumping up. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So um, I think that's an extra skill that you got to teach players or talk about it or at least, at least have them be aware of it. Um, well, I think it's a good point though, because if you think about it from a generational point of view, then the person we should talk about is Diego Maradona. Because he's the one who played against those Italian oh. defenders in Italy yeah. against the national teams. And they, I mean, they kicked them like routine. What would today be like yellows and reds routinely? He had to deal with that. And you know what? He didn't. He got a broken leg. He had to sit out. He had all these injuries that Messi and Ronaldo were able to kind of get through. There's a generational difference. You know, I, you would argue that if Messi and Ronaldo were in Maradona's days, Maybe they would have gotten hurt as well, and maybe the, the game is less physical now. Yeah, you even see guys, uh, the old, some of the English announcers, um, you know, Greg Burley and everything, talking about, oh, that would never have been a foul in their day. It's just a hard tackle. You just happen to miss, take some of his leg with you, but you didn't mean it. <laughs> no. Uh, so I, I actually like the fact that the game has changed in that respect because it's a skill game. It's not – I mean, one of the big American mentalities – that especially in the eighties, I felt was we really focused on the physical, be incredibly fit and, you know, put, you know, put the ball up and down on 95 and just run for it. And you did, you, you punished the skilled player. You punished the skilled player for holding onto the ball or, or whatever. And um, so I like that change in the game for sure. Yeah. And also I think the physicality doesn't necessarily need to go away. Meaning like 
Messi, Ronaldo, kinds of guys, they're so good with their body. Modric is so good with their body, how they position it, what, you know, when they receive a ball, how they position themselves between defenders, how they take a first touch and then slip their shoulder in front of you or initiating contact in certain moments. Like there's an, that's a whole art form that I think, you know, doesn't get talked about enough. And I think a lot of young players need to become familiar with it. All right. Well, good stuff. So, um, all right. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, getting caught up with Sasha. We'll get him on uh, in the next couple of weeks to talk about this. Maybe we'll get him on when we get even closer to the vote so we can figure out what's going on, what kind of chance it has to to pass. Because I think it's very important for college soccer to remain relevant. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no. because, because everybody wants to be a professional when they're in high school. You know, maybe most won't, but at least the – having college to go to gives you a chance to develop and try and play in the pros. Yeah. Um, this way, you know, it's like the English model. You got to jump out at 16 to make a choice. Yeah. And that's why I think the Ronaldinho documentary will be good because all these other, you know, all the content that's out there, you know, there's all these documentary behind the scenes with Juventus or, you know, the Tony Cruz documentary that's out there, whether it's Netflix or Amazon Prime. There's lots of content out there now. And so this Ronaldinho one will be interesting. I mean, I actually had a chance to, to meet him once. He, and he was a phenomenon, you know, like we had this moment yeah. where when I was with Chivas USA, we played against the revolution at the LA Coliseum, but it was a double header. And the second game was Chivas of Guadalajara against Barcelona, who was there in the summer for preseason. And the way the Coliseum is built, uh, it, it's built for American football. So the locker rooms are huge and they would just literally split it in half with like a drape. And so Chivas USA had one side and like Barcelona had the other, Oh my god! but you had to share the bathroom. So like there was a lot of con, you know, like flowing back and forth between the two groups and they would just, everybody was snapping, you know, just little snapshots of Ronaldinho and he players. was uh, other yeah, players, right? Other yeah, players, yeah, selfies yeah. with Ronaldinho and all that stuff. And it wasn't messy yet because he right. was just the new one that was coming up. And, but he was a well-known name, but it was still Ronaldinho was the star. And it was exactly at that time when it was being, you know, passing the torch from one to the other. And it was just this phenomenon to see the group up close, you know, Not, to see all these guys. I've seen that with two other athletes in my life uh, where profession, famous professional athletes are fawning over another former famous professional athlete. One was Dr. J mm -hmm. and one was Joe Namath where yeah. – I just watched, you know, they were like little girls in front of, well, yeah. is that derogatory now? Can you even say that? They were like just little girls like, oh my God, oh my God, there's Joe Namath. Yeah. Uh, fan, let's say young fans. Young fans. <laughs> there you go. That's because I'm always saying something wrong with my daughter. You know, it's funny. <laughs> it used to be college kids used to do stuff. They used to push the limits and do, do bad things because that your parents didn't know about. Now it's the other way around. They're College kids are telling us what we're doing wrong as parents. I know. You can't I say know. that. You can't. I, I don't know if I've said this on the show before, but I, I said, so, oh, I got gypped. And my daughter was like, Dad. I go, what? She goes, that's derogatory to gypsies. And I'm like, oh, my God. I had absolutely no Gypsies? Idea. Gypped means you're, you're, it's a derogatory thing about you got gypped. You got gypsied. Oh. So, which is derogatory to the Roma. Um, and I was like, honey, I apologize. <laughs> like, I had no idea I offended the Roma. At your university. Yeah, at some point, you just got to stop talking, Kevin. I think exactly. Just be oh, especially better. me. Yeah. <laughs> Even a comedy club, a lot of people are just, the young people are just sitting in the room with their arms crossed, just like with their hand on a buzzer. Racist, Texas, homophobic. <laughs> like, what? I'm, I'm, wait a minute. I'm shitting on myself. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, when I, the end of that game, where the end of our game, 
that Chivas USA game and yeah. finally came out to, to see the beginning of the Barcelona game. And the moment the whistle blew and the ball kicked off, uh, as much as it was Ronaldinho, every, all the players were taking pictures with Ronaldinho. Yeah. The moment the ball got past to Messi for the first time, every flash bulb in the stadium went off because they knew he was the next he star. Was the next one. Yeah. So it was pretty wild to see. What was the one game? We had the uh, MLS All-Star game here and Tottenham played. And Harry Kane was fishing. And nobody knew him. And he was fishing balls out of the back of the net, uh, getting them to the to the, the strikers at the time. Um, who was it? Uh, Albert, I forget what his name was. But uh, he was a nobody. And then all of a sudden that next season he comes in and, and he's Harry Kane. So, yeah. so one thing I think about our game, but I also I, I love, you know, at my age now listening to the games, I'm like, oh, wow, he's just about at the end of his career. He's almost 32, and it's tough to run the midfield when you're 32. I'm like, 32? Yeah. Break, but it's true. It's- yeah. Yeah, the game's so fast now. But they're also got it to a point where, I mean, we got guys pushing into the mid to late 30s now. What does uh, Zlatan say? He was the best player to ever play in MLS. He came out out this week. Just ask him. Just ask him. Just ask him. He's something else, man. So, uh, and he's like, he's a tough guy too. Like they show all kinds of videos of him just like pushing people and, you know, starting fights and nobody wants to go in. I would like to see him go up against a hockey player. Well, you know, he's a black belt. Is he? Well, you really can't say that. Now my daughter would oh. be mad at you. That's really he has a belt. Oh, has a belt. Yeah, and the color of it is. Yeah, and right. <laughs> and he. Uh, but if you look at his game, like for all the size and strength that he has, he is phenomenal with his balance and his distribution of power. You know, right. like and that's all martial arts oriented. If you think about it, and so like he's not only a, a freak show of talent, but he's so well dialed in on those areas. He uses that to his advantage as well. I, have, I actually have my black belt in Taekwondo. I wish I had it when I was playing soccer because it is true. Uh, part of it is the they call it the fire and water, where it's you know you're soft until you know the, the striking part and the fluidity that he plays with. But what I learned uh, in Taekwondo was to not fight. You could get hurt <laughs> really bad. <laughs> Plus, I always say I'm too I'm too stiff now to ever use it. I'd be like I'd be out in the streets and be like, Hey, what'd you say to me, pal? We'll come back here about 4.30, quarter to five when I've stretched my <laughs> groinal area and I will deal with you appropriately. When did you, you get know, your black belt? God, probably 15 years ago, 16. Do you still practice? Ago. No, I practice anything. I go for hikes. and Actually, after I got my neck surgery, the doctor goes, after six weeks, you can go back to normal activity. I'm like, okay. you know. And then I came in, I hurt myself again. He goes, what happened? I go, ah, I, I tried a bicycle kick in an indoor game. And... uh and I, he goes, what? You're playing soccer? I, I go, yeah. He goes, why Why'd you do that? I said, well, you said go back to normal activity. He said, yeah, long walks and yoga, not soccer, you idiot. Yeah, Massages, yeah. that's normal activity. So uh, it set me back a couple of years. But, yeah. Uh, Maybe you should no. go back to Taekwondo. I tell you, it's uh, there's a Shaolin um, studio right near me for, for Kung Fu. And I might go back to that. Because I tell you, it really is something where – you get so into it for an hour, just trying to figure out the motions that you forget about it. You forget, you know, forget where you are, and suddenly yeah. you're sweating your butt off, and an hour yeah. has passed. So, again, to the flow. But uh, yeah, but I got I got in a fight with a guy. I was a red belt, and we were sparring, and the teacher wasn't looking. And this guy was a big German dude, like six foot four, and he kept he kept striking me, which you're not supposed to. You're supposed to pull the punch, 
And so we we got in a full on fight. I'm fighting this dude, and uh, and they break it up. And they, the guy doesn't se separate us. He goes, okay, you guys take it easy. And uh, he sets us up again. We start fighting again, like full on fight. And so finally he separates us. We do two, go to a different sparring partner, and everything's fine. Well, we go into the into the locker room. You know, I've gotten in more fights in a locker room. But I can't tell you how many. Uh, so I'm in there and I'm waiting with my towel. There's one shower. And he's in the shower, so I'm waiting, you know. And all of a sudden, he comes out of the shower, and I'm like, he's standing in the way of the shower. I say, hey, can I get in? He goes, you will wait. And I'm like, oh, really? And then I just threw one out. Full fight in the locker room, two naked dudes. It would have been a great porno movie, a gay porno. <laughs> but if, if two Taekwondo guys fight, do yeah. you use Taekwondo in each other? or you yeah. just? Well, a lot it's of it goes like, out the window, but um, but let's put. But it this isn't way. that the whole point is to use taekwondo in those moments? Yeah, yeah, but it's but supposed, no supposed one to be calm. In, no, we both went nuts. But <laughs> I gotta say, and I'm not 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 bragging in a way, but Americans, our hands are so much better than just about everywhere else in the world. Because you, you throw a kid, a German kid, a ball. Would you like to qualify that as a general statement, or are you saying that as a fact? I am saying, in my experience, <laughs> uh, in the fights that I got in in the locker room. Uh, got in a really big one with a Mexican kid uh, who's basically a street uh, street gang guy, and he came in to learn how to kick ass. And the one great thing about Taekwondo is they started to teach you respect to your elders and the knowledge that you attain. And he became an instructor. He's a great guy. I know him now. But when he first came in, we 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 got in a brawl, man. And uh, and I noticed that the instructor always said Americans were very good with their hands because they're always doing hand-eye coordination things. We're catching mm -hmm. stuff, and uh, they don't. They don't, you know, no basketball, so a little baseball, I guess. But think about it with Americans. Um, so I don't know where I'm going with this, but in uh, I think I was like maybe I was three and zero oh for my locker room fights. Three and zero. Oh. The other guy was a red belt too. No, the guy I was the brown belt, the German dude. Um, he was on the cusp of his black, but that doesn't mean anything. It's just the knowledge. I mean, to, to you take one hit in the sternum and it's toast. You you watch these movies and you're like, oh, that that guy you're out um yeah belt of color that's what it is a belt of color uh nothing either and they said red belt is danger because you have a little bit of knowledge and you you know they, right they suddenly think they're uh they're bruce lee yeah uh, but at my instructor was a puerto rican guy uh small guy built like you couldn't believe it. and you would you'd walk by him in the streets and to watch what he could do he could take out an entire subway car if he wanted to, you know, <laughs> I mean, you'd be, you'd be messing with the wrong dude. Jose, I remember seeing him going like, Oh my God, it just, someone did something. This guy is, it's a machine. But um, was he powerful or more just technically proficient? Both, both. Yeah. This guy was sturdy, low built to the ground. And they had this thing where he stands, just stands normally. And he goes, try to push me. And you're trying to push him and he just absorbs it. He doesn't even move. It's depressing. I almost dropped a nut trying to push him. It was terrible. So well, I, if you do the Shaolin thing, <laughs> I, I want to like observe that. Can you I, just, go? Yeah, I just want to like popcorn on the sideline and just watch you Shaolin or whatever. Well, I think you have to put your two forearms up against the, the uh, red hot belly pot where you put the imprints on your side. I think that was the opening scene of Kung Fu. So if that has to happen, I'm out. <laughs> So, all right, Chris, this has been great. Uh, yeah, next time yeah. we got to talk about soccer. That'll be even yeah, better. Exactly, exactly. Well, 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the guys who have been in Blazers, they never talk about soccer for the first 20 minutes. So I think we're okay. Um, all right, man. So Sasha, sorry you couldn't make it this week. We'll get uh, you back in a couple of weeks when we get closer to this vote. And next week, we're pretty excited about this. Chris, I'm going to send you the the um, the documentary on Ramaldinho. Cool. Uh, Andrew Douglas and his brother will be our guests. We'll talk about the making of it, what they discovered. I mean, they went down to Brazil. They interviewed all kinds of friends and family. And like like you said, he was just an you know uh, just an, an idol to so many great players as well. And was and they do touch upon passing the torch to Messi, you know, mm. how, how good Ronaldinho was. And like, uh, like we both said, he always played with a smile. So uh, that's, it's great to see. And he's still playing. He's still kicking it around. I love all those old Brazilian guys. They go down to the beach in Rio and just kick it around. You know, they're still playing sand. Yeah, it's cool. So, yeah. So, uh, all right. So good stuff. Uh, like to or thank our non-guest, Sasha Sorosky. We'll get him on again. Uh, for Chris Shamides, I'm Kevin Flynn. And we'll talk to you next time on Over the Ball.